So really excited to have everyone here today. Uh, Larry Andelsman of Andelsman Law. He's one of the most active lender uh, attorneys that work with private lenders. Um, he works with us and uh, a lot of our competitors and just uh, really good at what he does. We have uh, Sasha Bernier, who uh, his, his company, uh, they lend, they lend mezzanine and preferred equity primarily on multifamily assets. Um, that's their focus. You know, they, they also do senior loans as well. Um, but they're, they're very creative uh, in that regard. And then we, we have uh, Jeff Navi joining us momentarily with Imperial Funds. Um, they are super active uh, lender based out of Florida that, that provides lines of credit and purchases notes from lenders across the industry. Can you hey. see me now, Andrew? How you doing? I'm in. <laughs> Perfect timing. I was just, just introducing you. Um, all right, so without further ado, um, I had a rush to join because I heard Larry's comment, so I know you want to speak alone. <laughs> <laughs> all good things, all good things. Um, so we're, we're here to discuss and uh, just give our thoughts on like what's going on today in the country in terms of the just the the housing shortage that exists. So according to the National Association of Realtors, there's currently a housing shortage of 5.5 million to 6.8 million residential units in the country today, which is, I mean, essentially like we're talking in terms of the, like the affordability housing, we're millions of uh, units that need to come online in order just to meet the basic needs of the country. And then uh, it's kind of just mind boggling how big that, that number is, like 5.5 million at a minimum. Um, it's staggering, but I, I, I'll kind of just set the tone by, set, by using that statistic. And then I, I'll open up to Larry with the first question. Um, so, Larry, what would you say has caused the housing shortage in the country today? I don't think that there's any, everybody here on the panel and anybody who's in the business was, no, there's not any one given factor. Um, but obviously, the obvious part is is the pandemic and COVID. You're talking about a, a monumental historical event that the world stopped. And if you, you don't have to be an expert in real estate or in economics to understand that when something stops, it has to start again. And this was a stoppage for a very long time, uh, which obviously in every aspect of our lives has changed uh, tremendously. The supply chain, being able to get goods, being able to get supplies, being able to uh, have an adequate source of labor. Uh, these are very basic things that we see from anywhere going to the department store where they have not enough workers to handle and they close their dressing rooms all the way into the housing market where you just don't have enough people to work and the supply chain in terms of there was a major lumber shortage and, and an increase in lumber prices which has uh, been alleviated but 
that all has to start up again. Additionally, and I'll let some of the other guys jump in, the economic factors. There's a lot of money out there. Interest rates are low. So you have a, a, a general environment where the, the real estate market was strong going in. Uh, there was, there was, it was a uh, seller's market before pandemic and, and increasing, as we all know, where the business was, is, is very busy and, and housing and purchases were, were very busy. Throw the pandemic into it with the factors I just said. And plus, then you have those who were renting or living in urban areas who had the aha moment that they got to now move to the suburbs or they need a home for a lot of different factors and reasons that some people who never wanted to buy a home considered, including safety, health reasons, uh, being ha having compounds, being out of, out of uh, highly populated areas. There's, there's so many different things that you can factor in, uh, but these are just some of them that, that come to mind immediately. Andrew, um, you know, I, I think Larry um, hit a lot, a lot of great points, but I think um, one of the biggest issues has just been government policy, to be quite honest with you. Um, in particular, in states like California, New York, um, and I'll just give you an example. Um, I was looking at a transaction in Berkeley, California, and I remember the soft costs, just the soft costs for um, this multi-family building they were building was something like $500,000 um, per, per door. And when, when I told the person, I was like, look, $500,000 per door, I think you made a mistake here. Like, what, you know, how is this going to be affordable if it's $500,000 per door just on soft costs? And um, she broke it down to me. She's like, oh no, because in California, you know, you have all these regulations and rules that you have to, you know, abide by, right? Like environmental, like solar or whatever. And I'm like, I, I, what if, if that's, if it's just $500,000, like who's going to be able to afford that, right? Um, I was just blown away and it wasn't a mistake, right? And so I think that like in the name of trying to do affordable housing, it's actually having the opposite effect, right? Um, there's this thing about New York, right? Uh, the market isn't dictating what the price should be. It's really the city of New York City by keeping a large amount of supply under really a price threshold that really doesn't keep up with the times, right? And so it's almost like having um, uh, uh, price controls, right? And so th there's these massive imbalances, right? And so if you think about it, what states have been growing the most when it comes to housing, right? It's been the Sun Belt. It's been the Southeast, right? Um, I'll give you some numbers. Uh, this was in, in, in the journal last week, which was really interesting, right? So in the last sentence, census, uh, Utah's housing developed group by 17.5, Texas by 16.5, Florida by 9.7, Idaho by 9.6, but California, think about it, California by 5.2% right? LA County added 4.3% versus 19.8% for San Antonio. Average median, ho median housing in San, in San Antonio was 225,000 versus nearly a million dollars for California. That's just, just doesn't make any sense, right? And I think that until policymakers in these regions that are, have like heavy concentrated populations have like serious discussions on trying to address these issues and not and, and and be willing to open up a little bit more and have a little bit more market forces dictate how to build these things 
we're just going to continue to have that. And, and you're just in, in places like California and New York are just going to continue seeing pressure. That's why people are moving out. They're like, wait a second, I just can't afford it. It's too expensive. I'm paying high taxes. And it's having the, the reverse effect. It's actually hurting the middle class, not helping the middle class. And I think there needs to be serious discussions on, on, on that. Yeah, and I think like the, the question becomes, what's next? Like when you go to California, there's like literally homeless encampments at Venice Beach. There's RV parks filled with people who like that's where they live now instead of homes and they, like, they live at trailers, downtown LA. There's just literally homeless encampments at Skid Row and so many different places. And it's like, what's next? Are we just going to keep on like ignoring this like obvious housing crisis? Or is like, is the private sector going to step up and are, are they going to start building units? And maybe it's not in California. Maybe they're building units in states that have like a more favorable regulatory environment like Texas or Florida. But Andrew, even think about what's what happened with the eviction moratorium, right? Um, people, it's just, everything's artificial. People that can work are not working, right? Um, and this has happened in my situation in some of the places that I've owned. There's no, if it's like, if you know you can't get kicked out, there again, there was, there was an article on this on journal, you're, there's no incentive, you're not being incentivized to work, pay your rent, right? Um, it's just a whole balloon, and this is really happening again in, in, in I hate to say it, in, in the Northeast, right, in California, right? And they have a bazooka approach as approach to saying, okay, we're going to figure out how to help um, um, owners of properties who have real costs, right? You still have to pay taxes, pay insurance, pay maintenance, all that stuff. And you've essentially have had your right to, uh, as an owner of property taken away from you right before your eyes. We're not saying, um, I think they, there, there hasn't been, again, policy isn't differentiating the difference between saying, okay, I should be able to go to court, okay, and this person has to prove that COVID has affected them, as opposed to saying there's this balloon bazooka approach that, you know, whatever, we're going to just force you to take away your property rights, right? and not understanding there are real costs being uh, taken on by property owners, right? They're bearing those costs. And what happens long-term, it's gonna be tenants that are gonna be affected. And so that's, that's, the, that's the issue that I'm seeing right now is that policy is just, there's a huge disconnect, right? And there's this idea that if you own property, you're a bad person, but there's a lot of people who are middle income owners Right, who have bought two four-family homes that rely on that as income, right? And so I think until there is a honest discussion um, right now on, on policy, and I think that you're going to you're going to continue continue seeing a migration to these these policies that are screwing up these very high expensive states. You're just going to keep moving to Florida, keep moving because I think in places like New York and 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 um, in, in in California, they've taken it for granted. And I think you're going to start seeing um, uh, uh, you're going to start seeing consequences of that. Well, I think I mean back to my point earlier. I think they're already seeing like California's already seeing the consequences of it by seeing those homeless encampments. Um, Jeff, you're on mute. 
So I was just going to chime in there, you know, and the other thing, Sasha, I thought it was great, the stuff you wrote. I think another piece to this, and we see this from the lending side, ironic, you know, not ironically, we just closed our, our latest securitization. I mean, with, with favorable rates, the, the problem is actually even being muted to what it would actually be. So I think there are prop, right, this affordability concept or that's out there, this problem would be magnified twofold, threefold, if you actually had rates up with the pandemic like Larry brought up and all these other things. I think this concept where the money is so inexpensive for the higher homes, for the you know higher end homes, and even the homes that probably fall somewhere in between, I think has um, helped what could have been a much, much worse problem too. But all this stuff has to be addressed. A lot of it's just a, a cost of living factor where you actually have situations where people are living in homes where the real estate taxes are two and three times, literally two and three times what the, or two times what the mortgage and interest are because the rates are so low where you can actually go in depending on your credit and get something in there. I look, I think, I think at the end of the day, yeah. And I think Andrew just brought this up. Private sector is a big, is a, is, is probably uh, the key uh, factor in solving a lot of these problems. And you've seen it. You're seeing it in a lot of these states like you brought up. But if you go into, uh, you know, some of these, even college towns where companies are now going, and I'm using Michigan as an example, Ann Arbor, I was there last night, or, or you go into Madison, Wisconsin, where they're building out the airport and the cost of living is much cheaper. They're, they're building like crazy in those cities because the cost of living is cheaper. The real estate taxes are about 10% of what we pay, at least up here in the Northeast. I think a lot of that's going to change. So I think the private sector is big. I think the public sector, if you rely on, uh, you know, the I used to do when I was at Goldman, I'd done stuff with the, I think it was the NYHA, the New York State or New York City Housing Authority and all that. These authorities were set up for a much different um, for a much different purpose. There's no way they can fix the problems that that are there now. And I know now from the lending side, if rates start going up, this stuff's going to get much worse. You just no, there will just people will not be able to afford the properties unless everything comes crashing down. So, well, if I, I'll chime in on that. I agree with everything you just said. But traditionally, having been doing this for almost 30 years and lived through many different ups and down markets from the late 90s, early 2000s to 2007, 2008, traditionally, as rates go up, prices are supposed to level off. It, 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 people can afford to buy less and borrow more. And you start to see that shift. But this isn't your usual market. This is un, un, uncharted waters. Uh, you know, you, I, I heard you have a background in Goldman. I was actually reading an article from one of their housing guys, and it's all over the place. They, they, they can't pinpoint uh, how this is going to change or, or, or what's going to change, particularly, we still don't know what's going on with this pandemic, you know, with, with variants and, and the political divides and some are vaccinated, some are not, are we going to be working in person? Is there going to be a, a shutdown and supply, supply chain again? Uh, what's our policy having to do with China, which affects so much uh, of what we do in housing and, and housing starts and building? There's a lot of unknowns. So these are all, all, all theories. We could all talk based upon our own experiences. Being in real estate, you know, I, there's no end in sight as far as I can see, unless there's some world event uh, uh, such as a pandemic 
or, or some a significant change in, in Fed policy or, or, or well, Larry, significant that's, change. But that's a big piece is rates go up. You do, you do the math. Yeah. I, mean, I think of my, I think back 30 years when I, 25 years ago when I had my first mortgage, I mean, we were happy to get seven and five eights on like a five one. I mean, eight and a half. You, you start, right. You start playing these, you start moving the needle, Larry. We were, I was speaking this up for like, how are people where I live buying these two, $3 million homes? The money is so inexpensive. You have, you don't have to make much. You could be making between, you know, a combined income as a family of 300,000. You're p buying with no problem. You qualify under the, you know, under pity and all that stuff, you know, where the DTI and the, you know, you know, 41 or less, you know, including other stuff. And, but if you move rates only by 50 basis points, your, your, your debt to income ratio probably goes up to 48, 49. So a lot of this, like you said, it's yeah. policy drives a lot of this. So I, and I don't, I'm not well-versed enough. I want to preface this. I'm talking about when I worked at Colvin, I had done stuff there. This is almost 30 years ago when I was there. And I, I, I don't know what's transpired since then, but you you bring up this whole concept of how do you fix it, or Sasha, I think, was bringing it up. I don't know if these authorities are as active anymore. I, it's been so many years since I've done this. I don't know if, if there are teams still in all these banks where they help set up the financing, and then they build, uh, you know, the the this housing, this, you know, there must be some some agency that's out there doing that. But I know back then it was very active, and there was a vibrant market to finance it. And they relied properly on the private market to go and help with funding. But, but Larry, that's my fear is that all you need is rates to go up by 50%, which is only a 1% move, but that's going to, something has to come down. You're, you're set with a, you have a, a, a pile of money. If you're right for somebody who's working a family of, you know, four or five, you, the, you have a set amount of money. So if rates go up, the house, I would have to believe at some point you work through the inventory and then the housing prices come down. I mean, it's, yeah. that's the way it goes traditionally. Part of my point though, when I was talking about uh, policy, if I'm homeless, I really don't care to have, I, if my house has solar panels or not, right? Like that's almost becoming mandatory, for example, in California. There's, there's a point that like, there's these rules and regulations that are making it really, really difficult. But um, one interesting thing though, um, you know, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, if you think about it 30 years ago, you know, the risk-free rate, you know, everything is really trades around treasuries, right? You know, we learned in business school, you know, 5% was really usually the rule of thumb, right? And um, if we, they, there's, there's this part of this bubble, essentially, is because it's artificially at 1.28%, right? Um, it's just causing um, um, asset inflation and people are just pouring capital and looking to pour money into it. And, and as a result, it's not really solving that issue, right? And the government is in a real bind, especially if they get this $3.5 trillion plan plus a $1 trillion with inflation going where it is, you, I, it's hard for me to see how this doesn't burst, right? You've got to raise rates at some point. And I think right now, based on where rates are right now, we're paying something like $400 billion of, of interest. If they were to raise it anywhere close to that 5%, I mean, you're, you're, you're literally quadrupling it, right? Imagine the U.S. having to pay you know, $2 trillion a year on, on interest expense, right? That's going to affect everyone. And I don't see, that's going to affect, that's going to affect mortgages, that's going to affect everything. 
So I think, um, Larry, as you were saying, we, we are kind of in this unprecedented times right now. Um, I don't even, you know, how do you address that with that being in the overhang? Larry, I'm you. I, I agree with you, Sasha. And, and I tell this, I speak this way all the time and people I'm sure approach you guys all the time and ask these questions about what we're discussing here. I, I feel these types of questions all day, all day long. And it's, it's just unprecedented. You could have experience in real estate, experience in banking, taking, be an economics major or master. This isn't something that you studied in school about what happened 10 years ago, 20 years, cycles. This isn't, there's nothing to study. We, we all know about economic cycles and everything, everything's cyclical, and, but, the, but the policies and then throw the pandemic into this that have gone on over the last six, seven years in terms of interest rates, and then throwing this, this change in political environment and, and all of that into play. This is, we're, we're, on, we're in unknowns right now. I mean, I think that, I don't think we should be overly concerned about Fed policy that in the past few years, uh, when the economy is needed, they've introduced quantitative easing and have worked in order to reduce the rates when, when necessary in order to stimulate the economy. Um, I, I think the, the greater issue and the, the relevant issue here is what can be done to fix the tremendous lack of housing, both market rate and affordable in the country today. Larry, I'll open up that to you. Well, I think we went over a, a lot of what could be done. I, I don't really know much about the public sector, uh, what, what, what the guys were talking about in terms of what, what public sector can do, but the builders, the investors that, that people that we deal with uh, in terms of the hard money and, and who the lenders are, are lending to who are coming in, developing and, and redeveloping uh, certain housing uh, and making that available to the, to the, to the two people to buy. Um, that is what's going to be continuing to drive the market. Um, and then you start getting into, okay, when are we going to start to see more inventory for the investors to buy, which they then will uh, rehabilitate to sell or rehabilitate to rent and make more housing units available. When are we going to start to see more inventory? But because of all of the foreclosure moratoriums that have been in place, the traditional ways or, or usual ways that investors acquire assets has also been stymied. Um, there's been a lot of forbearance, and I'm sure, for, sure Jeff can speak more to that. All of the forbearance that's out there, I've seen different types of percentages of people who are in forbearance. What's going to happen to them when the moratoriums lift and that forbearance runs out? What happens with that? What happens when the foreclosure machine starts up again uh, and, and those types of distress situations start arising again? I think that's when you'll start to see also some, some addition to the market of more housing units becoming available and more investors being able to have uh, inventory to buy and sell. Andrew, um, I, I kind of have to disagree a little bit with you on that. Um, I mean, the point that I was talking about the treasuries is everything is related to treasuries, right? 
everything is priced off of it. How we look at what investors want is priced off the treasuries. If you remember um, right before um, the tapering, when um, um, Jerome Powell was actually increasing rates, you started seeing mortgages go up and prices were going for, for like a two week period and then, and then COVID happened, right? And the point that I say that is because of where rates are right now, and because we peg it to that, there's so much money flowing that it's hard to make things pencil for affordable housing, right? You know, think about like, if there's a multifamily uh, urban uh, uh, workforce housing property being bid, bid at, right? Um, something that would have sold for, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Eight, you know, just a few years ago, um, I would be happy to get eight, nine percent, right? Now you'd be lucky if, it, if it's a really good underwriter, you're probably looking at more at five, six percent, for instance, in, in Texas, right? And so it, it's a, it's, it all flows, right? Investors have certain expectations of capital, money's flowing, right? And because there's this asset prices are going up, it makes it harder to really build um, inventory that targets, that, that helps people in the, I guess, the lower middle market, right? Because it's just not going to pencil in, right? If, you're, if your land prices, buying land now is, is so much more money, um, just to give New York, right? The reason why in New York City, you can't really build affordable housing, right? Is because land, you know, price per square foot is way more expensive. So you have to build a condo. It all flows, right? And so because we have this, this asset inflation, right? You have to go to places where you can, um, there's enough land and you can bring in more supply, like a Utah, all the places that are growing, Utah, Texas, Florida, um, Arizona, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's clear the numbers are there, right? Like the numbers don't lie. And you can, you can, right? So, Jeff, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, no, I think, well, I can go back to Larry's point. So, what, what I think Larry said at the beginning is crucial, though. We lost a year of building. I was, somebody was explaining to me who, is also in my space with Andrew, myself. They're a Texas-based entity, a large, a, a large finance company doing somewhere between 150 million to 200 million a month. We're a little over that now, but um, we lost a year of building effectively. Not exactly, but between prices moving up and other stuff, there's supposedly a million. There are a million homes that can be built. Then don't quote me the numbers, but rough a million that can be built but there's demand for a million and a half plus the backlog, they're saying it's going to take three years just to catch up. And if you go look at the home builders earnings and you listen to their earnings calls, they've said kind of the same thing. There's still tons of demand for all this um, for not even, not even just luxury, but for those, for the, for the, for the condos, like you said, of the townhomes and all that. Um, I think that a lot of this, I do agree with you, much of it is driven off Fed policy and where that all goes. But you also need to have a vibrant and working um, private sector you know, market. So we're very active in the non-QM space. Like I said, today we closed our third securitization. We're about five to seven weeks away from our next one. We play a very active role in providing a tremendous amount of liquidity to a part of the market. And these are great bars, 730 FICO, the average LTV is called 70, 72. I mean, these are in many ways much better than the QM market, than the agency market, because there's a lot more liquidity that these bars are bringing to the table. But I actually think without that part of the market, you're going to have huge disruptions because I don't think that you can rely anymore completely on these quasi-entities. 
I think a lot of it is driven by rates, but you also have to have a market that's actually working. So you you talk about what happened in 07, 08. Um, I think that's uh, that's a uh, I think that's a, a point in time in the market, but I think that's also uh, a part of the market where things just stopped. What was that question? Somebody just asked a question. Is it a good time to buy the market? I was going to answer that with, right? Was that the question that just popped up? I think it was, uh, is now a good time to buy a house. Right. So my comment to that person, that's a great question, is where do you think rates are going back to Sasha's point? If you, and I, I can give you my two cents on this, I think rates are going to stay artificially low for years. That's my own two cents. If you believe rates are going to go up, it goes back to my other concept. It's really simple. You have a pot of money as a family. How you allocate that money, you can't miraculously just make more of it. Uh, if rates go up, you will have less to spend on a home. So home prices theoretically should come down. And unfortunately, to Sasha's point, many of these built-in costs through your real estate taxes, through local, federal government, all that, doesn't really change. And that's that's part of the problem too. Housing prices will come down. If you believe rates are gonna stay constant, uh, then I think it's a pretty good time to buy the market. If you believe rates are gonna go up in the next couple of years, I also probably think it's a good time. But if you think they're going up in the short term, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be going into a bidding war with everybody else because it's gonna soften. Everyone should go look at, to Larry's point, Go look at the chart on lumber. I tried having a, a deck worked on and lumber went up fourfold. The chart just goes straight up and then it crashed. It's right back to $400, however they marked that. It went to $1,600, went up fourfold in a matter of four months. Picture if you're building a home, what that does to that. So plays a role as well. Someone asked a question uh, that I think would be a good thing to talk about us and someone in Atlanta. And the question basically is, well, all these investors are coming in and paying whatever price. And is that causing uh, the average person to be unable to buy a home and competing with the investors? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, my point earlier and, and things that Jeff touched on, there's nothing to buy. Just like everybody else, there's a housing shortage. So it's, it's short for the buyers, the end buyers, it's short for the investors. So when you have investors in the market they're the first in all the time. They're getting the off-market deals. They're getting the sweetheart deals. That, that's what they do. So they're always going to be ahead of the average buyer. So certainly it is contributing, contributing to the shortage, but that's in every market. The investors are always grabbing the deals and, and able to obtain the properties. In this heightened uh, shortage, it may be, they may be seen more because usually you don't see these guys coming in on MLS and paying the asking prices on MLS, they're on the steps, they're in the courts, they're in getting foreclosures, they're with the banks buying REOs, they're buying in bulk. Those opportunities aren't there because the courts just haven't been functioning and it's not a distressed market. So when you're not in a distressed market, these investors find a way and that's where they're coming in. And they're also contributing to the higher prices because they are willing to pay asking price, knowing that there is a shortage and whatever improvements they're going to make to the property is just gonna raise the price more and they're gonna make money. This Larry, is capitalism. Larry, to add in, to, to make it even more difficult, you're also competing against artificial intelligence and Zillow, right? <laughs> Zillow has it, all these different things that you're going on, gathers information. I think in like in, in, in Texas and Arizona, Zillow has like, a, literally its own capital and 
immediately like it's like the trading that they do right like as soon as it sees like the house available boom it throws out a bid because it already has like the uh, um uh the algorithms that says that knows exactly what number to bid and, and how to move and where to go and so like that you add that to it supply is just moving it's just moving out so just to throw a wrench into things i mean i guess right now we're talking about the existing housing stock but there's uh, large institutions like KKR and Blackstone that are investing billions of dollars into build for rent communities, um, 400 units, 500 units, 1,000 units at a time. So in my opinion, the, the only real way to deal with the, the housing shortage is for these large institutions to step up and, and to build massive amounts mass amounts of housing stock in in states that have favorable regulations and that would only begin to address the the shortfall of millions of units um i i suppose it might be wishful thinking i don't know if they're, if they're gonna step up to that extent but that's the only way i really see it working um, Jeff, what are your thoughts in terms of a, a solution that, that the private sector could come up with? Yeah, um, so <laughs> I know about all the, the SFR stuff these guys are doing where they're jumping in and they're jointly, they're teaming up with folks to do stuff, um, you know, the buy to rent products and, and all these markets. I mean, that stuff was really active five, six or eight years ago, and I felt like it actually fell off a little because I think people rates came down tremendously over the past call year and a half ago. And I don't think people had to rely heavily on that because rates were low enough that they could afford. But I would think that that's where you'd see part of the market come back. But the bigger void is I think what Sasha said is how do you, how do you find a way to um, not incentivize, but um, prioritize, uh, the middle, middle income and lower income housing and all this and find a way to actually um, uh, build out that part of the market because I, I don't feel like we see it. I, I see limited buildings going up. It's like I said, New York City is super expensive. So unless there's a huge builder to make it affordable, you know, I don't, I don't know where we go from that. I wanna just flip this a little bit to, back to Larry. Larry, when the courts do open back up, given where rates are and given where there were so many government subsidies to the underlying borrower in forms of um, unemployment benefits and things of that nature, and, and right theoretically, when you got your mortgage, you might have lowered your mortgage payment by 50%. Do you believe you're going to see this mass, I don't want to say exodus to the door, where the courts are then flooded with all of these you know, foreclosures and, and whatnot. What do you think will happen? Because I think the forbearance, I think between all the government, uh, the government help, I think a lot of that, I, I feel like we're not gonna see much of what people are expecting. Uh, what do you think? And is that true? I mean, I'm not I a agree. lawyer, so I don't know. No, no, I mean, you don't have to be a lawyer. It's, it's dollars and cents. One is exactly what you just said. The other part of it is everybody's houses are worth more. <laughs> when they went into forbearance oh, wow. in yep. 2020, if their house was worth half a million, it's probably worth 750 right now. 
and that gets them out of way. It. They're going to have a bank that's going to refi them or, or take them out of the problems based on assets alone. And when you have private lenders coming into play and the products that are being offered by guys like WeLend and, and you guys at Imperial and, and others, it's a game changer because you have private lenders coming in and able to work in these distressed situations. Now, I know it's, we're talking about owner-occupied versus business purpose, but, but you understand the gist of what I'm saying. Where there's equity, there's a lender. Um, they'll find a way you know, to, to, and, to tell, and, help those people. So the answer is yes. It's, going, it's not going to be a, a deluge of, uh, of foreclosures like 2007, 2008. Correct. No, it's a different, and, different environment. And one point for Sasha, to his comment where it's all driven by the Fed, the one thing that's different, and to the to the um, the person who is listening um, uh, or who asked that question, and Larry, I don't know where you sit on this too. If a borrower, to your example, you take the five hundred thousand dollar home borrower was in trouble, right now has a forbearance plan set up, um, which many of these borrowers I don't think realize that they don't. The payment uh, doesn't get forgiven, but it gets added on to the back of their mortgage and now can actually go out, right? They get back on their feet and all that good stuff. The reality is regardless of what rates do, and this is more for Sasha, that bar, if they lock in a 30-year loan at two and five-eighths or two and three-eighths or two and a half, it doesn't, I mean, rates should go up. It doesn't really matter for them. As long as they're on a 30-year fixed loan, that bar is locked in. And I understand the house might come down in value by 100000 but do they really care? And this is more for Sasha. Do, does that bar really care because they no, no, locked no, no, in the Jeffrey, cheap money? Jeffrey, I agree with you. It, but what the question is, of what does it do for new supply, right? And that's where it's, it's affected, right? Because there's what's, what's going on is the reason why is if you bring out like hard money, you know, I used to buy, you know, uh, two family homes in Jersey, fix them up. And now there's so much hard money in what I call yeah. the, I don't know, let's call it between 200,000 to a million dollars, right? Where they're giving, you know, up to 90% leverage that the prices are just getting bidding up like, like crazy, right? And so to make the numbers work, right? Um, it's going to be a certain demographic to make that, to make that work, right? And then when you go into the typical, but to, I'm just talking about multifamily, right? Literally, how many deals, how many multifamily deals do you guys see a day? I mean, like, I see at least 50. I mean, at least 50 multifamily. 50, what, what, multifamily? There's, yeah, someone's buying. Yeah, a we're not in that space, but I, I know it's, it's crazy right now because we keep getting the inquiries and we're not involved. We keep, to, right, so five plus units, it's not our market. But it's interesting you bring that up. So crowded. I mean, it, it is like, I, I mean, Andrew, I'm probably sure you see that, right? Like, just think about like, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, it's literally to me, I feel like it's, 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 it's as easy to buy a, you know, a multifamily uh, uh, project now as it is to buying stocks on, 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 you know, uh, on Scottrade or something like that. That's how crazy it is. And, and it's being fueled by all that, all that, that capital. And so as a result of that, you know, it's just you, with just current inventory, it's hard to make the numbers fit to make it affordable because people just are just like throwing money in like like crazy and it's got a pencil in it to that effect. However, um, I do think, you know, if if uh, um, the bigger players were to start building homes and, and, and bring in supply, maybe there'll be, you know, um, less pressure on, 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 on the supply demand metrics. So. 
I mean, I think what we've been seeing at WeLens is in general a shift from people, from investors coming in with commercial deals. And, and so instead of doing retail or office deals, they're coming in with a, a multifamily deal. It's just because there's been so much distress related to COVID on those commercial asset classes that, I mean, multifamily has just been a safe haven. Um, I, I don't there, there, there was no distress, Andrew, too, a multifamily. It's kind of crazy. Like, I remember, you know, when March of, of, of when this whole COVID thing started, it was, like, kind of interesting. Like, we, Andrew, we were looking at deals, right? Like, we, we thought between, I was thinking that between March and um, April, May, June, uh, from what I remember, I thought that prices would actually start readjusting. But what was happening was people just was like, we're going to hold, hold out. We're going to, we're not going to sell, right? Um, so they held on to multifamily. And then literally by summertime, I feel like everything just like picked up again and prices actually went more to the roof, right? Because, and and it was nothing like 08, 08, 09. And, and when you think about 08, 09, there was, a, you know, there, there was actually more supply coming in. Um, I think like the statistics were like, you know, there were about 2 million homes being built you know, up until the, the, the Great Recession. I think now the average is 1.6. And so it's just really causing, like, like as we were talking, like this, this uh, imbalance, right? So if you think about it, that's like $400,000, 400,000 units less per year when we were building back then. So you add that, 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 that 400,000 goes back to, I guess, that 5 million number that you were discussing because it hasn't, it hasn't ramped up. But back to, I think to just to go and, and uh, Andrew will be happy. There's a lot of amazing, there's actually great questions I, and, and great stuff actually on the chat. One of these. So one of them asked the question though, uh, and I, I got to go back to it. I apologize. Hopefully you don't see the screen. I'm in Atlanta. But, um, the low end, like what the, the big question right here is when does the inventory uh, when will inventory meet demand? Will it ever? Um, or And can it flip-flop, actually? And I think a lot of that is back to that point that I brought up, or Larry partially said, too, is you lost a year. So all, all, that, all of that, all those buyers become pent-up demand. Not a good thing. That's got to work its way through, through the market. So one of the comments I heard, and this is for those that are listening, is, so somebody told me it's going to take somewhere between a year and a half and two years. This was back in February of this year to just play catch up. Forget about what demand there is that, that's backlog. But the question also comes down to, again, what does the Fed do? How does that impact everything? Rates go up. Do, do some buyers fall away? You know, how, what did lumber do now that lumber's down? Has that has that penetrated through the market yet? And I don't think it has because I still think, you know, the two by four that was 99 cents that went up to $6, is that back at 99 cents? I don't think it is because I think there's some inflation built in now. So, I mean, these are great questions that they're all asking. I think at the end of the day, if you're a buyer, you're a small buyer and you've locked in your rate, I don't know that it really matters. I mean, it's like trying to time the stock market. It's, it's not possible. Uh, because you'll get it wrong every time. If you can afford what you're buying, and that's the big piece to this, if you're buying with leverage and all these other pieces there, you'll get burned when rates go up. But if you're buying and there's no leverage and you have a job and all is good, 
it shouldn't matter. You're locking in very cheap money at two and a half, two and three quarters, three. We'll never see this again, although I keep saying that. I guess Japan would prove that wrong, but that's a big piece of this too. We've been saying that about interest rates for a long time, uh, and they've gone down. Uh, But again, what goes down must come up at some point. We all know this, but when and how much, like you said, we don't know. Um, What I tell friends and family who are buying uh, properties to live in, okay, forget about investment properties. Oh, the price is so high. Last year or last week, I could have bought for this, and now it's this. And I say to them exactly what you just said. So what? You're locking in at a low rate and pick a number, 30,000 higher. You're buying it to live in. You're buying to enjoy with your family. It's not an investment. You're buying it to use over a long period of time. That amount of money that went up from the last time you thought you were going to pay for it is basically irrelevant. So long as, like you said, Jeff, you can afford to do it now and it makes sense. It doesn't matter. <laughs> that, and, and that's you, and what's driving the, the high prices. If, if you do the math to what you just said too, Larry, on 30000 assuming a 3% rate, which is apparently high, um, it's $900 a year. You're, you're right. talking about like $80 a month. I'm not saying that's nothing. I'm just saying in the scheme of things, to well, walk people get from caught up home. in this. Oh, I could have bought it for this. I could. You could say the same thing, Sasha, like you said, the stock market. You could. Oh, I could have bought the stock for this six months ago, but you know what? You didn't. And now, now you're in a situation where you have to make an assessment right now, and this is what it is. Larry, I agree with you on that, but I think that the, 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 from what you're saying, though, is the prices are so inflating. We think about where inflation's going, also, right? It, it's going to make really middle the middle class is really what's getting squeezed out. Right, like those are those are the people that make, it's going to be difficult for them to buy to buy houses, and so that's the ultimate question: How do we solve for that? Right, but Sasha, I don't know, Sasha. That's that. Oh, 2007, 2008 happened for many reasons, and I was pretty public. I was speaking on panels back then. You knew when they started giving out forty-year mortgages to people that the market was going to collapse because clearly they had to do that just to try and qualify the borrower. Right, they couldn't qualify the borrower. And we're on a 30 years. So that's what you did. Home ownership was at an all-time high. I don't know that everyone should be owning a home. I question whether if the public sector was working and you had borrowers being able to afford rentals and to, until they've saved up and done, that part of the market probably has to come back. Not everybody should be owning a home. That's just a fact. That's a fact right. of life. But, but, but Jeffrey, but millennials, though, they've been living with their parents for yep. way longer right and they've been squeezed out way longer than than typical than, than typical so i think that's 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 the difference i think between 08 and, and 2000 i forget what the statistics were but i think the numbers were showing that you know you prior to the financial crisis the average age of someone bought a home i think was 31 and i think it, now it's in the millennials it's got pushed up pushed out to like 38 so at what point right <laughs> at what point do they get out because you also want them to bring real wealth and and going back to the question about the inventory aspect of it, it will be interesting, though, because um, the U.S. has been growing at the slowest pace that it's ever had, right? Like, um, I think the past 10 years, it's only, been, it's only grown a little more than 3 4%, which is a, the, 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 the smallest amount. 
And so you're going to have a, a, a reverse. Like, do, do you build up and then you you over um, overbuild? I don't know, but, but, but you but overshoot. Yeah, but we do know that right now you do have this five million dollar shortage. When you just think about the fact that we've been building at one point six million, and I think and I think a lot of this gets decided based on uh, what the Fed does. I really believe that it all comes down to the Fed because if you raise rates enough. It chokes out borrowers. Instead of there being seven people bidding, you're at less than one person bidding, which, you know, it, 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 literally on average, if you have less than that, your prices then come down. I, I think it comes down to the, the cost of capital, the cost of your money. Um, there are points, I think, of for us where we live in New York, where there, there were points before all this where it might have made more sense to rent from a tax standpoint than to own because the real estate taxes are so high and rates were a little higher and all that stuff. So it's a great question. You, I, I, th you, I think are nobody you, has a Florida to Jeff or I would vote. Well, we're headquartered down there. I would love to go there, but now Florida is not, not is yeah, not yeah. the be. I mean, the, the prices have gone up tremendously there. I mean, that's another market where you could have bought a home for in parts of Florida for two, $300,000. Those homes sell for 500, 556. It's changed the affordability, like you said, for many people. So right. wait, to, let's see. I mean, nobody has a crystal ball. There's no way we know what's going to happen because I don't know where people are. We have a lot of inflation. Are employers meeting that inflation demand? You're seeing... Um, for set uh, for help signs where they're paying well above minimum wage. I mean, I just saw the other day CVS was offering $22 an hour starting. They can't get people to work in their stores. Kind of, you know, potentially, you know, just all, everything going on with the pandemic and providing all these resources. But when the resources shift back and people have to go back to work, you know, I think that changes things. So, I mean, I think back to Sasha's point earlier, like the, I do think the middle class is getting squeezed out of home ownership yeah. and should the rates or when the rates go up, I mean, that's going to, it's clearly going to affect the uh, people's ability to afford their mortgages. But I think with that in mind, with that pretext in mind, I mean, if there's entire communities being built for rent purposes, then I would think that people renting for their entire lifetime is going to become a new normal. It's like yeah. no, no Andrew, the American Andrew, Andrew, it was like that. There were periods of time, I'm doing this almost 30 years, where that was part of the market. There were people that were never making enough. The math didn't work. We, you have people buying homes today that never had the ability to buy because it, there, it was a, an affordability issue, not of just the home, of the actual equation of given where, you know, where rates are or the type of product they're using. That's changed all the way up and down the spectrum, in my view. For uh, parts of the hard money market, stuff that was double digits is way inside through competition and through other for through other means the private sector's helped no entirely entirely um so 
I mean, just to like help sum things up and just uh, wind, wind things down, um, like what do you guys foresee um, occurring in terms of the housing market in the coming years? I mean, I'm seeing a lot of, I've been seeing a lot of build to rent. A lot of sponsors now are, 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 are moving to the build to rent space. Um, it's becoming a whole really, at first, you know, you saw the Blackstones buying single family homes and renting them. And now you're seeing sponsors and, and individuals actually build homes to rent. And they're focusing in on, again, the Sunbelt, um, the Southeast, um, obviously, again, again, I think it's because of, of policy, the numbers pencil out. And I think that, um, you know, you're going to continue seeing that migration because at the end of the day, people want to be, it's, it's what's affordable, right? And so um, a lot of tertiary cities that we've never thought about, you're going to start seeing like, like I know like Provo, Utah, you know, and, 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 and believe it or not, even the Midwest, even the Midwest, in some cases, you're beginning to see a renaissance, Indianapolis, you know, these places that have big universities and can anchor um, good social lives. So Columbus, Ohio, yeah. um, Lexington, Kentucky, um, you know, because of, of those places anchoring good jobs and tech t technology, those are gonna be the, those are gonna be the very, uh, uh, and, 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 and believe it or not, COVID kind of accelerated it, right? You, you, you kind of see that you don't have to be in these big cities. And so, um, I think a lot of the, 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 a lot of major companies have little um, outposts where they can have satellite offices and you'll be, you'll begin to see those places um, um, booming and, and, and look out really look out for the Midwest because I've been seeing a lot of activity in Indianapolis and, and, and Columbus and, and Michigan actually is actually making a, a, a comeback um, um, also. And those are big cities. You, a lot of those cities you mentioned, I said it to you before, like even like a Madison, Wisconsin, which is always a great town, but Homes there, it always hovered, the average home, 220, 230, 240. Now, while they've gone up tremendously, 270, 280, compared from an affordability standpoint to the coast, it's, it's the greatest deal ever. And you have companies migrating. So many companies now are, like you said, Sasha, are now putting their corporate offices in these places. Columbus is like, I think, one of the hottest cities now. And 12, 15 years ago, homes were 20, 30 grand. You couldn't give them away. For that reason. And now there's these this revitalization of all the, you know, their downtowns and whatnot. So I agree, you're going to find it in some of these uh, cities that have the infrastructure to build out and all that. And I think people are going to leave all these other areas, like you said, California, they're going to be leaving New York, Boston, where it's just become impossible uh, to live uh, for, from a financial standpoint, you know, for, for the majority. Obviously, you've got uh, this group of folks where it's never going to be a problem, but that's not everybody. Yeah, and part of the reason also we, we're, we're finishing up here, the rental market, like Sasha was saying, the investors buying rental properties, the SFRs, tremendous volume going on now, uh, driven by all the factors that you guys just said, the different markets and the money that's available. Let's not forget uh, what we're all doing on a day-to-day -day basis. The lenders uh, are huge. The private lenders are huge in the SFR market, uh, the rental loans, the portfolio loans. Here in our office, we're closing nationwide 
uh, in all of these areas that you just mentioned, up and down the uh, East Coast, Southeast, uh, into the Midwest, we're closing tremendous amount of loans for these single family rental products. The, the, the loans that are available to these investors and the rates and the terms it's incredible uh, that this product is there. The banks can't do it. The banks can't beat the private lenders and they won't be able to beat the private lenders in speed, timing. And now it's even getting pretty close with the rates. So that also I think is driving the market because the fix and flip market in general is not strong for all the reasons that we, we were talking about. But if you're able to borrow money privately from the private lenders, guys like you guys and others, uh, at, at reasonable rates, you know, for a long-term 30-year uh, product on this, there's no end in sight. Yeah, and, with, and then with just this, with this type of, with this product. Yeah, and one other thing just to point out, I think is so important. I didn't mean to grab the mic there, but it, um, I think one of the questions that came up from one of the participants is, well, not just is it a good time, but what what are the markets? How, how long will rates stay here? Where when, when will things not be as great as they are? I think primary markets, primary homes, those markets, tons of strength. I think this a smaller grouping of, you know, two, three, four million dollar homes that are second homes and investor homes, that part of the market is going to have a real problem when rates go up because that has a smaller universe of buyers. They're not in these bigger cities. They're there it's you know you're going to have it's the demand and supply concept you you will see more supply come on and demand fall and we've seen it in all of these vacation areas and whatnot okay i think it's a great point um i think so one of my favorite warren buffett quotes is that uh, he doesn't know anyone who can predict cycles accurately <laughs> oh, I guess time will tell as to how things will play out in the market. Um, so look, I'd really like to thank everyone today. Uh, so Larry, um, greatly appreciated. So Larry from Andelsman Law, uh, any private lenders, I would definitely recommend his services to, uh, for you guys. Um, Sasha, uh, Hestia Holdings. If you have any prep or Mez deals, reach out to Sasha. And we do equity too, Andrew. So <laughs> we're we're very. I mean, I'll I'll tell you something actually interesting, guys. Like we we uh, we're very opportunistic. I'm actually um, I was in Guadalajara, Mexico, looking at a office conversion to a um, a WeWork style resi. Um, and now I'm in, 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 in Colombia looking at a similar project. So we're very opportunistic. So if you have something opportunistic, we'd love to talk. Beautiful. And uh, Jeff Navi from Imperial, um, they're very active in the, the one to four unit space, uh, providing lines and buying notes. Um, so I uh, greatly appreciate it, guys. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, take care. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Thanks, guys.